All right, so we can go ahead and turn in our, I think you guys have them on uh, the back of your notebook, the Wellspring Discipline. We'll review that first. Our theme verse, Proverbs 4, 23 says, Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. That is what these Thursday mornings are intended to help us do. The purpose of Wellspring is to equip and encourage the women of Grace Bible Church to shepherd their hearts toward Jesus Christ with the word of God so that they live gospel-transformed lives, thus strengthening the church in its gospel purpose. The orientation of a compass is north. The needle always points us in that direction. Just like a consistent orientation of a compass, our hearts need to have a consistent orientation toward Jesus. And what I loved about studying Mary was that it was hard to stay focused on just her. Um, When I'm studying Mary's life, I kept getting distracted by Jesus because her life is so intertwined with Jesus. God is the main character of every passage in Scripture. We know that. But it's never so evident as when you try to study just Mary. So I hope that's been a blessing to you as you did your homework and that it will be a benefit to you today as we spend a lot of time looking at Mary and consequently coming face-to-face with Jesus. Discipline one is the heart. The The faithful woman of God shepherds her heart worshipfully toward God through the word of God and in particular the gospel. The gospel and God's words are precious. It's what God has given us in order to know him, and we should pay attention to it like we would a light shining in darkness. 2 Peter 1, 19. Discipline 2, the home. The faithful woman of God is concerned for those in her home and ministers to them with her heart fixed on God and his word. As we pay attention to the word of God and we grow in our love for him and in our obedience to him, We can serve and love those who are nearest to us. We love because he first loved us. 1 John 4, 19. Discipline three, ministry. With a heart fixed on God and keeping her God-given ministry within her home a priority, the faithful woman of God steps into the church and every part of life to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. Every believer has the responsibility and the privilege to serve the body of Christ with the abilities and the gifts that God has bestowed. Listen to Romans 12, 4-6. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. All right. You can go ahead and turn to your outline for Mary. This morning, we're going to study another biography, in a sense, of a woman in the Bible. We're going to see what the Bible records for us about Mary as the mother of Jesus. And I do love that we're doing this during the Christmas season. In your homework, you had a verse from 1 Corinthians 10 to be a reminder and a guideline as you read the first two chapters of Luke. Paul wrote this epistle to the Corinthian believers, and he reminded them of the history of the Israelites. He wanted to remind them that they had been rescued from slavery in Egypt. They passed through the Red Sea. They were under the same cloud in the wilderness. They all ate the same food that God provided, and they drank from the same rock. But God was not pleased with most of them because they had desired evil. They were idolaters. They were immoral. And they put Christ to the test, and they grumbled. So Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10:11. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Sometimes I have wished for more information in scripture, whether it be on a topic or on a person or a situation, but Paul's statement to the Corinthians is encouraging and it's helpful to remind us that what has been recorded is for our instruction. God has intentionally revealed specific truths and intentionally recorded specific parts of history, and that includes what he wants us to know about Mary. The passages that contain information on Mary are exactly what God desires that we know about her, and those passages are for our instruction. So let's pray before we start. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you that you have revealed to us what you want us to know about yourself, Um, and about all these different 
people that are a part of your plan for history, and that includes Mary. God, I just ask that as we come to your word today, you would grant us understanding and clarity as we look at your word. And I pray, God, that we would also have clarity as we um, try to apply these truths to our own lives. And God, there's going to be so many different ways we can apply it because there's so many different women in this room. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would help us um, to understand and then to make appropriate application to our own lives as we uh, leave um, hearing from this word. God, I just pray too that um, most importantly we would see you in these passages, that we would um, leave worshiping you because we've seen you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I wanted to give you guys all the passages that is in the Bible about Mary. And so that's why you have um, all those passages listed out there. Um, I wanted to just kind of give that to you. Not that we're going to, we're not going to look at all of those today, but just this is everything that we have. We can kind of put it together to make a whole complete, complete picture of Mary, at least what God wants us to know about her. There's obviously much more to her life that we don't know. So starting with Matthew chapter one, I'll just give you a sentence for each of the ones that we're not going to look at. Matthew 1 contains the genealogy of Joseph, and it tells the story of Joseph and Mary and the conception of Jesus more from the perspective of Joseph. Matthew 2 starts off with the visit from the wise men from the east. Then it tells us about the trip that um, Joseph, Mary, and baby Jesus took to Egypt. And then it talks about their subsequent return to Israel and how they settled in Nazareth. Then Mark 12, I'm sorry, Matthew 12, Mark 3, and Luke 8 all record the same incident. This is when Mary and her sons, Jesus' brothers, are coming to talk to him while he's busy teaching a lot of people. They send a message to him through a disciple that they're waiting for him. Jesus uses this event to teach the people and to teach us that spiritual kinship is even more important than natural kinship. Those who hear and do the will of God are his brothers and sisters and mother. Those who love his father and show that love by the obedience of their lives, are so dear to Jesus that he claims them as his own family. Then we have Mark 6. This is kind of, this is just a reference to Mary. But Jesus is in Nazareth, and he's preaching in the synagogue, and he's teaching. And as he's there, people are kind of talking among themselves, saying, isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this the son of Mary? So that's the reference to Mary there. And then um, they're saying, we know his brothers and his sisters. Who does he think he is? basically what's happening in Mark 6. Then Luke 1 and 2, this is what we're going to be spending our time on today. Um, This is the more of the story of Joseph and Mary and the conception of Jesus from Mary's perspective. A lot of people think that Luke used Mary as one of his primary sources as he was writing his gospel. Then I didn't write down Luke 3 because Mary is not mentioned, but Luke 3 contains a genealogy and it's different than the Matthew 1 genealogy. So it's probably very likely that that's Mary's genealogy, even though she's not listed in that. Um, Okay, Luke 11, there's an indirect reference to Mary here. Jesus has been wisely and authoritatively disagreeing with the Jewish religious leaders in public. And there's a woman in the crowd who's just amazed at what he's been saying, and she's kind of putting herself in his mother's shoes. And so she cries out and she says, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. She's saying, your mom is one lucky woman. And then Jesus replied, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. And I wanted to read you what Matthew Henry wrote about this. He said, we must be careful, lest as this good woman, we too much magnify the honor of his natural kindred. Jesus does not deny what this woman said, nor refuse her respect to him and to his mother. But he leads her from this to that which is of higher consideration and which more concerned her. This was a check to the woman to not dote on his bodily presence and human nature. And it was, he gave her basically a hope that she could be as happy as his own mother. Then I have listed John 2 and John 19. We're going to look at those two passages today. And then Acts 1. After Jesus had resurrected and ascended to heaven, the disciples, along with the women who had followed him and Mary, his mother, and his brothers, they met together in an upper room, and it says they devoted themselves to prayer. That is the last mention of Mary in the New Testament. So that's the overview of Mary's life. 
Now we're going to move in kind of from this bird's eye view down to uh, maybe a deer's eye view of the forest. We're going to look a little bit closer at two specific gospel accounts about her. And then we're going to look at her according to three sections or three seasons and roles in her life. First, we're going to talk about Mary as a young woman. And by young, I mean basically a girl. She's so, so young. Um, The first section, you can fill in the blank there, a virgin named Mary. Then secondly, I think actually maybe like three on your outline, but secondly, we're going to look at Mary's life as a young mother. So I read that 40 is the new 20, and then I just read somewhere that 50 is the new 30. So (laughs) I wanted to say she is young for basically the entirety of her motherhood. Um, She was probably in her late 40s, maybe even early 50s when Jesus was crucified. So um, the second part of your outline is Mary, a mother, sorry, a mother named Mary. And then lastly, we're going to talk about Mary as a follower of Jesus. So the very last point, I think it's number four, is a disciple named Mary. Okay, so let's look at Luke 1, 26 to 56 together. And as I read it, look for details specifically about Mary. Look at... um, whether or not you see any words of commendation, um, any descriptions. I think it's kind of interesting to read this section of scripture um, looking at information for Mary, because usually when we read it, we're looking at Jesus and Christmas, and that's what we should be thinking about. Um, But anyways, let's just try to read it and notice things about Mary. Okay, verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has conceived a son. And this is a sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. In those last, I'm sorry, in those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. Remember how we were so amazed at how little revelation Hannah had during her life, but how well she knew God and how strong her faith was? Well, the Jews during Mary's lifetime had a lot more revelation. They had the book of Isaiah, which clearly foretells the coming of the Messiah. There were more and more references to the coming of the Messiah through different prophets and and even 
some of David's psalms. Those of you who are reading the McShane reading plan for your um, Bible reading probably recently read through Micah, and I couldn't help but think of Mary as I read it. Um, It was just cool to think that she had, either she could read it on her own or she would get to hear it, just like I get to sit there and read the Bible. We got to read the same things. And in chapter 2, it says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. She would have been able to hear that. The nation of Israel had the complete Old Testament at this point, but for the last 400 years, they had not heard from God through a prophet or through direct revelation. And all that is about to change with the greatest revelation of himself that God has ever given us. And it starts with not just one, but two angelic visits by the angel Gabriel. Gabriel first visited Zechariah with regard to the conception of John. And then about six months later, he comes to the house of a virgin named Mary. Luke says that Gabriel was sent from God. Again, we're reminded that God is the main character. He's the initiator in this visit and in this plan. Okay, so did you notice any words of commendation for Mary? Verse 27 gives us three descriptions of Mary. This girl, this woman, is one, a virgin. We see that she's a virgin. We see that she's also, two, betrothed to a man named Joseph. And then three, she's from the house of David. That's pretty much it. And then it kind of almost tags on, oh, and her name was Mary. So we have those three descriptions. Those are important descriptions because those are fulfillment of prophecy. We do need to know that she's a virgin and that she's from the line of David. But they're not really glamorous or extraordinary descriptions. Elizabeth and Zechariah, the parents of John the Baptist, earlier in Luke 1, they get a nice word of commendation. Luke says that they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. We know that God doesn't... um, It's not about merit with God. There's nothing that we can do to be good enough for him. But you might even be able to look at them and say, oh, that's probably a good family for John the Baptist to be raised in. They're godly people. But um, Mary gets nothing like that. Even Joseph in Matthew, um, Matthew tells us that Joseph was a righteous or a just man. We can be sure that Luke and the Holy Spirit were intentional in what was written about Mary. What do we need to know about her? She was an ordinary Jewish girl living in a little town called Nazareth. She was betrothed to a young man, and they were both able to trace their lineage to King David. She was unknown and essentially a nobody. At this time in the Roman Empire, um, in history in the Roman Empire, they required that a female could not be betrothed before the age of 10. The minimum age for a male to be betrothed was 14. So that doesn't mean that they got married at that age, but they could be in a legal contract to marry a specific person at that age. And so they would usually wait until puberty happened or like maybe a year after puberty um, to actually get married. The Jewish culture was similar to the Roman Empire, to the culture around them. So we could probably assume that Mary is about 12 or 13 at the time that Gabriel comes to visit her. So here's Mary. She's a betrothed virgin. She's roughly the age of a seventh or an eighth grader. And Gabriel comes to her and he says, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. This visitor and this greeting caused Mary to be troubled. The NESB says that Mary was perplexed. She doesn't even respond to him. She instead is thinking and trying to discern what kind of greeting this is. It was unusual and she wasn't sure probably what it meant. So maybe she was trying to think about how to appropriately respond. Mary seems to be a very thoughtful and pondering sort of person. Even at a young age, she seems to be analyzing and thinking. In the second chapter of Luke, we're going to see this later on, um, Luke says that she treasured up things twice. Um, She treasured up different things about Jesus, words and actions, um, things that happened at the time. Um, He also uses the word, I think, astonished or marveled after they're in the temple. So we're going to see that all the way through. But this is the first time where we get to see Mary's thoughtfulness. She was not impulsive in her speaking, but she's slow and thoughtful. Gabriel then tells her she does not need to be afraid because she has found favor with God. He tells her twice that she is favored or blessed. And another way to say that is that Mary was a graced one. She's been shown grace from God. The same word is used twice 
for emphasis in Ephesians 1.6, and I'll read this to you. It says, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed. The words freely bestowed are the same word. He freely bestowed on us in the beloved. That's in the NASB. The root word for freely and bestowed are the same words used in Luke 1 when Gabriel talks to her and says that you're favored or blessed. So it's just a, it's a word that's just showing gifting, things that aren't deserved. It's grace. And we just need to be really clear on this because this is where the Catholic prayer to Mary comes from, where they say that she is full of grace, where it's almost like she can give grace because she's full of grace. She's able to bestow it. And that's not at all what this is is saying. Um, She is a recipient of God's grace. He's given it to her, but she cannot um, bestow it. It's not originating with her. Gabriel has much to tell Mary. This is a weighty message that he has to relay. Put yourself in Mary's shoes. Remember, you're 12 or 13. You're still living in your parents' home. You're preparing to be married. Maybe you're currently working on prepping a meal. You probably live with siblings, but you happen to be alone in the house. And then a visitor, who seems to be an angel, greets you and tells you that you're favored with God and that God is with you. You don't know what this greeting could mean, and as you think and try to figure it out, you might be speechless. Then he tells you quite a message. You learn that you're going to conceive, you're going to bear a son. You need to name him Jesus, which means God saves. And this child will become a man, and he's great. He's not just going to do great things and then become great because he's done great things, but in his essence, he is great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. God is going to give him the throne of his father David, and he's going to reign over Jacob, which means Israel. He's going to reign over Jacob forever, and his kingdom will never end. So the message that you just heard encompasses the next few weeks of your life to the end of eternity. This is a lot to comprehend and a lot to think about. Mary does respond to Gabriel after this long and thorough message. She asks, how is this going to be? Because I have not known a man. She believes it can and will happen, but she's just wondering how. And she seems to understand this is going to take place immediately. It's not going to happen after she and Joseph are married. So Gabriel answers her question. And he just says, the Holy Spirit is going to come. The power of God will overshadow you. And because of this, the child to be born to you will be called set apart or holy, the son of God. And then Gabriel tells her that another unlikely and impossible conception has happened to one of her relatives. It's her old cousin or aunt, or maybe a great aunt, Elizabeth. She who has been barren for decades is now in her sixth month of pregnancy. And then he tells her why? Well, because nothing will be impossible with God. Mary responds with this incredibly humble response. She says, I am the servant. She says, I'm God's servant. Let it be to me according to your word. Her humility reminds me of Hannah in 1 Samuel. She does not have lofty thoughts of herself, but she sees herself as God's servant, not vice versa with God as her servant. She knew that much grace was being shown to her to have an angel come and speak with her, to be chosen, to be the one to bear the Messiah, the one who was going to deal with sin and reign on David's throne. Not long after Gabriel leaves, Mary uh, hastily went to a little town in Judah to see Elizabeth. Mary walked into Zechariah and Elizabeth's house and greeted Elizabeth. When the sound of Mary's voice reached Elizabeth's ears, the baby, which was John, leaped in her womb. And then Elizabeth exclaimed something. She was full of the Holy Spirit, and she spoke inspired words. She said to Mary, You are blessed. The fruit of your womb is blessed. And then she expresses humble joy, and she's asking why it was granted to her that the mother of her Lord should come and visit her. Then she tells Mary that Mary is blessed because Mary believed what was spoken, that what was spoken to her from the Lord would be fulfilled. Think how encouraging this would be to Mary. Who better for her to visit than Elizabeth? Elizabeth had conceived a miracle baby after Gabriel had appeared to and spoken with her husband in the temple. And even though they're on opposite sides of the spectrum, they have a lot of mutual encouragement to share. One is old and past childbearing years, yet she's conceived by her husband a child who would be filled with the Holy Spirit from the time he was in the womb to be the forerunner to the Messiah. The other is a pregnant, unwed teenager who has not been sexually impure, but she's going to have a baby that is actually God in human flesh. So Mary did believe Gabriel as soon as he was there in in her home, but she's now receiving um, just more confirmation that this is true, this is from God. 
and how sweet that God gave her this encouragement through an older woman who could identify with all these unusual events going on. And we already know from Luke earlier in the chapter, we know that Elizabeth was a godly woman, and she walked in God's ways. So this was probably a very joyous and encouraging time for both of them. After Elizabeth speaks by the Holy Spirit, Mary then gives praise to God. This prayer of praise gives us the greatest insight into Mary's character that we've had so far. Mary's words reveal an amazing knowledge of scripture that had obviously penetrated her heart and worked itself out in her own thoughts and words. And again, it's similar to Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel 2. With the exception of the first line, each phrase of Mary's praise, the subject of each phrase is God. She starts this prayer of praise by saying that her soul and her spirit magnify and rejoice in God, her Savior. So we see, first of all, that Mary knew that God was her Savior. She obviously saw herself as someone who needed saving. So we can be sure she was aware of her sinful heart and how it expressed itself in thoughts and actions. The second phrase, verse 48, points out that the transcendent God had looked on her, she who is of humble estate and who sees herself as God's servant. How amazing and how undeserving she was to have God's gracious sight set on her. And because of this, she says future generations would agree that she is blessed. She was given what she did not deserve. This mighty, all-powerful God has done great things for her. His name is set apart from all other things, people, and gods. In verses 51 to 53, Mary says that she sees God as powerful, and he's sovereign over all people, whether or not they know it. He is opposed to the proud. He scatters them and brings them down, but he gives grace to the humble. She concludes by praising God for helping Israel and for keeping his promises and remembering to be merciful. And I was reminded again, you can tell when if you're on the plan, the McShane plan, I was reminded again as I was reading Micah at the very end of Mary. Now, I'll just give you the passage. I can't read it. I don't have time. But it's uh, Micah 7, 12 to 20. Oh, no. I think it's 12 to 20. Maybe it's 18 to 20. I can't actually see. So um, <laughs> we were just talking about that. It's not exactly quoted in Mary's praise, but the thoughts there um, are maybe expressed in her own words. There's so much in all the prophets that seem to be coming out in Mary's praise at the end of this chapter. So to summarize Mary's, Mary's Magnificat, which Magnificat is just the Latin word for the first word in Mary's prayer of praise, which is my soul magnifies. I think my soul is like part of the verb magnify. So that's what Magnificat means. From Mary's Magnificat, we can observe that Mary sees herself as needing a savior. She sees herself as God's servant. She also sees herself as one who is blessed and as one who fears God. She then praises God for looking on her humble estate. She praises him for being mighty. She praises him for doing great things for her. And she praises him for giving mercy to those who fear him in every generation and for opposing the proud. She praises him for exalting the humble and for helping Israel and for remembering his mercy according to his promises. So let's just conclude this section with some observations on a virgin named Mary. You did this in your homework probably. What has been recorded about Mary is for our instruction. So let's make some objective observations and then we're going to interpret those truths into our own words. So I'm gonna give you my words, but feel free to write them in your own words. And then we're each going to make subjective personal applications to our own lives. And I'll let you guys do that pretty much on your own. I might give you a few questions to help you kind of go that way. First of all, we see from scripture, these are what we can say objectively, concretely. Mary was a virgin. She was betrothed to a carpenter. And the carpenter part, we know from Matthew. That's obviously not in Luke, in case you're saying, hey, it didn't, he didn't say that. Um, we know that she lived in a small town named Nazareth. And in her Magnificat, she confirms that she is of humble estate, and she calls God her Savior. So that's like a group of observations. And so here's my interpretation, my interpretive conclusion from all those truths. I would say that we can say Mary was young. She was humble in character and humble in circumstance. We know that she sees herself as God's servant because she says, she says that uh, to Gabriel, and she's kind of those ideas are in her Magnificat. She also knows she needs a Savior. She's aware of her sinfulness. And her life situation was very ordinary. 
she was a young virgin living in a small town betrothed to a carpenter. That's not, I mean, that's respectable, it's fine, it's nothing extraordinary or uh, where people would give honor to someone or uh, like it's not like a governor or a leader of some sort. So what does Mary's ordinariness reveal to us about God? Secondly, we can concretely observe, these are the words of scripture, that Mary was greatly troubled, and that was when Gabriel came to her. She was greatly troubled, and she tried to discern. So those are the observations from scripture. To put this into my own interpretive words, I would say Mary was thoughtful. She doesn't seem to be impulsive or quick to speak, and I wanted to read you um, a little bit about what Matthew Henry said about her. He said, um, youthfulness in general tends to be overly confident in one's abilities or future accomplishments. He said Mary was not given to great thoughts of herself or her future, and that was evidenced in that when an angel appeared to her and told her she was favored by God, she was not quickly accepting of this praise. Instead, she was thoughtful because she knew her own heart, and she knew she was not worthy of God's favor or praise. There's just a quietness and a thoughtfulness that shows up repeatedly in the accounts about Mary. Okay, the third concrete observation is that she praised God at the end of chapter 2. So interpretively, we could say Mary was a worshiper. She is not the one who deserves or should receive praise. It's God alone. She wasn't confused in thinking that she was holy or set apart like God because she was going to be the mother of the Messiah. She just gives praise to God. A fourth observation is that Mary's Magnificat contain Old Testament truths and ideas. We can trace those back and see that that's accurate. God's character revealed in the Old Testament is that he looks on people that are his. Um, sorry, he looks on his people. He bestows mercy on those who fear him. He made promises to Abraham and to Israel as a nation. So the interpretive conclusion is that Mary knew the Old Testament well. It was on her heart, it was in her mind, so that when she spoke, she spoke scripture. Her youth was not an excuse for immaturity or selfish thinking. So application questions would be, how well do I know scripture? How well do my kids know scripture? Mary's character and her sober-mindedness say a lot about God's grace to her, but I think they also tell us something about her parents' faithfulness. It's probably likely that her parents were obedient to Deuteronomy 6 to speak and teach God's ways to their household, whether they were laying down, walking, working, or cooking, because she was so young and to have such a good knowledge, a good grasp of scripture. All right, now we're going to look at Mary in a new phase of life. She's now a mother. She was not only Jesus' mother, she had at least four other sons. Their names were James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. And she had more than one daughter. We know that from, I think it was Mark 6, um, where Jesus is in Nazareth talking. And they said, well, aren't his sisters here with us? So there was more than one sister. So she had a lot of children, actually. However, scripture mostly tells us about Mary in this new role of mother in regard to her firstborn, which is totally fitting because he's the main character of the entire book. So let's read Luke 2, 1 to 3. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. So the Roman Empire had set up this registration system that happened every 14 years. Luke is a historian, and he is, he is being precise with timing and events. I was going to say he's attempting to be. He was being precise. It's that we are a little bit further back. So probably if you're closer to when he wrote, it would be so obvious. Oh yeah, I know when that happened. Um, but for a while, a lot of scholars have said, well, this can't be true because we know when Quirinius was the governor and that wasn't during the time Jesus could have been born, which um, Herod died probably around 4 BC. So Jesus was probably actually born around 4 BC or maybe 5 BC. Um, but anyway, um, so they're saying this couldn't have happened because we know when this guy was the governor. Well, since then, there's been more um, archaeological evidence found, and it had something about this guy that was a governor at one point, but he had also been, um, I don't know if he was considered the governor. I don't remember. He was some sort of leader, but he'd also served as a leader sometime before, and it would have been during that time. But I just think it's neat to see um, how these things kind of come up and then 
um, agree with scripture, and we don't need those evidences. We can just trust God's word. We can believe that what God's recorded is true, even if it doesn't fit with like common human knowledge. Um, if there is a discrepancy, we can assume the error is with human knowledge, not divine revelation. But anyway, we'll keep going. Um, verse 4 and 5. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. So the timing of this is just amazing. God's in control of details. The Jews, um, I guess, did not like this registration and taxation um, that's being forced on them by the Roman government. And so they're kind of dragging their feet or maybe pushing back a little bit. And it seemed like they had um, kind of put it off and it needed to get done. So that's why at this point, Joseph and Mary are kind of being forced to go at this time. Obviously, you know, they're in a position where if you don't have to travel that far, why would you do that? Like they had to go at this point. God is sovereign over that. It's so, so cool how it all worked out to fulfill prophecy. So I guess the Jews are the ones that cared about um, going back to your hometowns. Caesar just wanted to know how many people are in his kingdom, and he wanted to get money from them. The Jews cared about lineage and going back to their hometown. So that was kind of like a Jewish add-on to all these, th- all these events. So that's why they ended up going back to Bethlehem. So we know from Micah 2 that he had to be born in Bethlehem. Then in verse 6, we'll keep going. It says, And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Now, I think all of us had or have certain expectations for how the births of our children would take place. When I put myself in Mary's shoes and I imagine traveling 70 or 80 miles, very pregnant, to go to a census, and then you get to Bethlehem, and not only is there no place to stay, but people can probably tell that you're very pregnant, and yet no one had mercy or compassion to offer their room or some other space for her. And when I think about that, I'm not going to assume what Mary would have been thinking, but I think at the very least, it's an opportunity for disappointment, if not bitterness, um, sadness, or self-pity. I doubt Mary was hoping for a birth on the road or a manger in which to lay this precious child. But when we think about all these details, the timing of being in Bethlehem, even the discomfort of not having a nice place to deliver a baby— to a manger instead of a lovingly handcrafted cradle that Jacob or uh, Joseph probably could have made. We need to see how each detail was sovereignly ordained by God for his purposes. He used kings, governors, the Jewish culture, and a census to fulfill prophecy. He also used the lowly, humble, possibly disappointing details of Jesus' birth to be assigned to the shepherds. They were to look for a child in a manger. That's a specific detail for looking for a newborn, and it's really unusual, and it's very unlikely, especially for anyone who's important. If you guys need me to repeat anything, because I think there was like, do you want me to repeat it? Okay. Um, What did it start with? God used. Oh, yeah, yeah, he used kings and governors. Okay. He used kings and governors, the Jewish culture, and a census to fulfill prophecy. He also used the lowly, humble, possibly disappointing details of Jesus' birth to be assigned to the shepherds. So God is sovereign over complex situations that involve hundreds of people or maybe thousands, like a Roman census, and he's sovereign over the details of comfort or lack of comfort for two people. The timing and details of every birth are in God's hands. He determines when each person is born. He's even sovereign over the C-section schedule. He rules over every moment in detail. He even orders the details of what hospital room one is assigned to and the nurses at your children's births. He wanted Jesus to be laid in a manger. He wanted him to be born in obscurity and humble circumstances. This was how God wanted to reveal himself and his son to the world. He came as a humble servant to save his enemies. So now the story in Luke 2 starts up with the, um, picks back up with the shepherds. So we're going to skip down to 16, where Mary's back in it. And they went with haste, the shepherds, 
and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And again, here we see that Mary is observing and thinking. One commentator suggested using the English idiom, mulling things over. She was probably trying to put all these revelations about who Jesus was together into a a big whole picture. Mary didn't know what Jesus' ministry and mission would look like. She knew some things about the Messiah, but she didn't know the little details. She was a part of something that she didn't fully understand. It seems that from the first interaction with Gabriel until Jesus ascended to heaven, she was observing and pondering and thinking about who he was and what Messiah was to do. And then we see in verse 21, we'll just read this one verse right here. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Again, we see Mary and Joseph were obedient. They followed the Jewish laws. They had Jesus circumcised on the eighth day. They obeyed Gabriel's command that came from God to name him Jesus. And that is, again, the Old Testament name of Joshua, which means God saves. It's just a reminder that God is happy to save, and he saves through his son. And then let's read the rest of this section about Mary. I think it's verse 22. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it is written in the law of the Lord. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what it said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. So Mary and Joseph take Jesus to the temple in Jerusalem, and they dedicate him. And they also perform the rite of purification for Mary since she's been unclean for 40 days after having Jesus. The Old Testament law required that baby boys be circumcised, and circumcision was um, just an outside reminder of the need for cutting away sin. It was a sign that God gave to Abraham, um, but part of that was just a reminder of the sin that um, needs to be dealt with. A woman who delivered a male baby was considered unclean for 40 days, and she was unable to participate in temple practices or temple activities. So if a woman had a female baby, she was unclean for 80 days, probably because the female baby is not circumcised, so the days were longer. John MacArthur points out that the Jewish laws, this is where you guys have blanks, I think. Um, The Jewish laws provided everyday reminders of the sin resident in every human being. There were reminders all the time of the distance between man and God and the need for salvation. Mary and Joseph are obedient to these laws. It appears that they went from Bethlehem up to Jerusalem 40 days after Jesus' birth. While they're at the temple, they encountered Simeon and Anna, which we didn't read about the encounter with Anna. But they've been waiting to see the Messiah, these two older godly saints. These two saints were knowledgeable of God's word and his promise to Israel regarding the Messiah. Simeon was even knowledgeable about the grace that was to be shown to the Gentiles, specifically. Again, we see Mary is thinking, and she is specifically marveling um, in this encounter. Just keep in mind that she is very young. She's a first-time mother. She's a new wife. And although she's knowledgeable of Scripture, she's not as wise as Simeon and Anna. How could she comprehend what was going to be required of this child? How could she comprehend what he was going to reveal of the hearts of the people around her, including her own heart? I think the writer of the song, Breath of Heaven, identified well 
with Mary when he wrote these words from her perspective. He said, do you wonder as you watch my face if a wiser one should have had my place? I just feel like, I mean, don't we all feel like we can identify with that? And we have kids that are sinful. It's just an amazing task to be a mom. But then she's a mom to a sinless child who is God in flesh. And she's so young. And I I just, my heart just goes out to her. I, I feel like that was a good capture, probably, of what could have been going on in her heart, that song. But God was kind to give Mary encouragement um, from Elizabeth first. Uh, I think she received encouragement from the shepherds coming to visit, and now this wise um, saint, Simeon, as well as Anna. And then I think she's going to be encouraged by the Magi, the visit there. So at this point, Matthew is now going to fill in some details of Mary's motherhood that Luke doesn't give us information on. If you want, you can look at Matthew 2, or you can just listen. I'm just going to summarize it. Matthew 2 starts with the wise men coming to visit. They came from the east. They stopped in Jerusalem. They found out that the king of the Jews was supposed to be born in Bethlehem. So they go there, and they find Mary and Joseph and Jesus, and they worship him. It was pretty amazing that Gentiles from another country were watching a specific star, and then they followed it in order to see and worship this little miraculous Jewish baby who was born in such an unglamorous way. After the wise men leave, an angel appears to Joseph in a dream, and um, the angel tells him to take Mary and Jesus and go to Egypt until he hears from him again, and then they can come back to Israel. I think it's worth noting that Gabriel came to Mary directly regarding Jesus' conception and ministry back before she was married, and then an angel came separately to Joseph and talked to him before they were married, about Jesus' conception. Now they're married, and they're a family, and the angel speaks to Joseph and directs the family through him. Even though Mary is the physical mother of Jesus, God directs the family through the leadership of Joseph. And that just confirms and illustrates what God has revealed in other scriptures about roles in the family. So Joseph, Mary, and Jesus Jesus, go to Egypt, and we don't know exactly how long we were there, but it probably actually wasn't that long Um, because Herod died pretty shortly after Jesus' birth. So an angel appears to Joseph, and he tells them that they can go back to Israel. They go back to Israel, and they go up to Nazareth. Um, I wanted to show you on this map that is obviously not to scale. (laughs) As I was looking at it, I'm like, wow, that's not, I don't know if this is going to be helpful. But, um, so they started, I don't need this, but they're up here in Nazareth. That's where they had lived, and that's where the angel comes and talks to them. They had to go down to Bethlehem for the census. So you know how the Jews did not like to travel through Samaria. Through Samaria. Um, so you could add on, I guess, supposedly it only adds on 10 miles, which is why you can tell my map is not really correct. Looks like it would add on a lot more miles. But anyway, they had to come down here to um, Bethlehem. It's even further south than Jerusalem. They probably stayed here for like 40 days at least. They went back up to Jerusalem to do all the purification and the offerings in the temple. Then they went back to Bethlehem, and that's when the Magi came to them and visited them. And then they had to go down to Egypt, down here. And then they came back up and went to Nazareth. So the first part of Mary's motherhood, this new role, she's on the road, and she's gone. And they just traveled really far. So God was faithful to take care of them. He kept them safe. However, put yourself in Mary's shoes. She's young. She's new at being a wife. She's new at being a mom. And she's away from her own mom, her own family, and everything that was familiar. She may have been a little bit familiar with Jerusalem. She might have been there before. Um, She probably wasn't familiar with Bethlehem. She certainly wasn't familiar with Egypt. So all this is kind of new. Um, Her role is new, for sure. She and Joseph would have been forced to depend on each other and God for strength, for fellowship and encouragement. There was prophecy to be be fulfilled in all of these events. But I'm guessing there was a lot of marriage building and growing in holiness through difficulty for both Joseph and Mary. Then the last event I want to look at for Mary as a mother is in Luke 2, the end of the chapter, starting in verse 41. Now his parents, uh, Jesus' parents, went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended... As they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. 
But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. So his parents went to Jerusalem for the feast of Passover each year. This would have been quite an undertaking for Joseph and Mary because they would have had to close up their shop um, and their home for at least 10 days in order to do this. The spiritual benefit of obedience and worship was worth what it cost them to do this every year. Luke tells us that Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem and his parents supposed he was in the group that they were traveling with. Luke and, and they couldn't find him. Luke doesn't cast blame on either Jesus or on Mary and Joseph, so I don't want to guess at whether this was negligence on their part, but we know that it was not disobedience on Jesus' part. And it's just hard for me not to read into this um, my own mothering or my own children. I have a 13-year-old and 11-year-old on either side of this age, but we have to be careful not to insert our own children into this story. Jesus was a 12-year-old boy um, at this point, but he is also God in the flesh. He is the actual creator of Mary and Joseph. He's the creator of the world. He was the creator of the men in the temple with whom he's interacting. So we don't know the exact details that led to the situation, but we know that Jesus was not disobeying a command or neglecting a responsibility that Joseph or Mary had given him. He did let his mother know that she should have known that he would be in his father's house. He was making a clear reference to himself being God's son because Joseph's house was in Nazareth. MacArthur thinks that he was also making the point that his heavenly father's intentions for him overrode any intention or expectation his earthly parents had for him. He went back home with them and he was submissive to them. Then in verse 51, we read again, and his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. There it is again, Mary's thoughtfulness and her treasuring. So let's make some observations on Mary as a mother. First of all, we can observe from the words of scripture that Mary, these are the exact words, treasured, pondered, was astonished, and then treasured again. And those, the, the, the object of this treasuring were certain events and words, words of Jesus, actions. So to put it in my own words, I'd say again that we see Mary is thoughtful. We all have an internal monologue going on in our heads. We all think about things. But we get to see what Mary's thinking about. She's thinking about Jesus. She's thinking about what was said about him. She's thinking about what he did and what he said. And not only did she think about these things, but they were precious to her and valuable. We know that because of the word treasure. You treasure what's precious, what's sweet, uh, what means a lot to you. Secondly, we can observe that Mary and Joseph circumcised Jesus. They named him Jesus, according to Gabriel's word. They offered purification sacrifices and the offering for the firstborn that they needed to at the temple. And then they went to Egypt when Gabriel told them to go. So from all those observations, I think we can interpret this into a conclusion that Mary and Joseph were obedient. And we're specifically talking about Mary, but Mary was obedient. She did what God required, and she trusted that his ways were right and best. That's essentially what obedience is. We God says, this is what I want you to do. And even if we don't understand it, we trust that that's right. We trust that that's best, and so we're going to do it. A third category of observations include these. First of all, there was no room in the inn. And then Mary gave birth somewhere around animals because she laid Jesus in a manger. It actually doesn't say that she was in a stable. We can probably very safely imply that she was in a stable because there's a manger there. Um, but we know she was around animals when she gave birth. So my interpretive observation is that Mary was humble and unassuming. This was a young couple. They were new at traveling together. They were really new to each other in these roles. They are on the brink. Um, this is going back to when they're traveling down for the census. They were on the brink of having a baby. Just imagine yourself in that setting. 
um, wouldn't you or your husband kind of insist on figuring out something else? I don't know if it was cultural or their youth or just that they weren't persuasive in their personality, but nobody gives them any sort of preference or care. And I don't, my heart, again, my heart just goes out to them. I think about their youth. Um, they are so young and they're inexperienced. And um, knowing that God is sovereign, God has chosen them to be the ones where he places his son. They're the ones chosen to take care of him. I think I would have just been overwhelmed at how kind God was to do that and also at how uh, humble God is and how humble he was, humbly he was presenting himself to the world. Their hearts just must have overflowed with love and gratitude. All right, let's move on to a disciple named Mary. We're going to move on to the Gospel of John. John records two other really significant interactions between Jesus and Mary after Jesus began his earthly ministry. Uh, John 2, and we'll start with verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. And then he does the miracle. Down in verse 12, we see another mention of Mary. After that, they all went down to Capernaum, and Mary and Jesus' brothers go to with the, the disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. This interaction between Jesus and Mary is very interesting. Mary makes a statement that seems to also contain a request. She lets Jesus know that the wine is gone. Of course, no wine is a big deal in this social setting. She's not just giving Jesus news for the sake of information. She would like his help in some way. Jesus responds by saying, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. D.A. Carson, in his commentary on the book of John, equates the word woman with the word ma'am. He says that the way Jesus addresses Mary, though thoroughly courteous, is not normally an endearing term, nor the form of address preferred by a son addressing a much-beloved mother. So Jesus is definitely giving Mary a measured and courteous rebuke. At first glance, we may not see anything that needs to be rebuked in Mary, but Jesus did. Jesus asked her, what do you and I have in common so far as this matter at hand is concerned? And I'm going to read you a paragraph from um, D.A. Carson's commentary that helps summarize what happened between them. And you guys have, I think, the last section of the paragraph. He, He writes, we must not avoid the conclusion that Jesus, by rebuking his mother, however courteously, declares at the beginning of his ministry his utter freedom from any kind of human advice, agenda, or manipulation. He has embarked on his ministry, the purpose of his coming. His only lodestar is his heavenly father's will. This must have been extremely difficult for Mary. She had borne him, nursed him, taught his baby fingers elementary skills, watched him fall over as he learned to walk. Apparently, she had also come to rely on him as a family provider. But now that he had entered into the purpose of his coming, Everything, even family ties, had to be subordinated to his divine mission. She could no longer view him as other mothers viewed their sons. She must no longer be allowed the prerogatives of motherhood. It is a remarkable fact that everywhere Mary appears during the course of Jesus' ministry, Jesus is at pains to establish distance between them. This is not callousness on Jesus' part. On the cross, he makes provision for her future. But she, like every other person, must come to him as the promised Messiah, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Neither she nor anyone else dare presume to approach him on an inside track, a lesson even Peter had to learn. For no one could this lesson have been more difficult than for Jesus' mother. Perhaps that was part of the sword that would pierce her soul. For this we should honor her the more. It seems that this moment was must have been a turning point for Mary. She had been treasuring up and pondering the words about Jesus and all the events surrounding his birth, and now she's getting a fuller picture of what his mission is about. Her understanding is not complete. It becomes complete after the cross and after the resurrection. This moment in Cana seems to be the point at which she learned that this child, this man, 
was on a mission from God. He was not primarily her son, but he was primarily the son of God. And her access to him was not through her motherhood, but through her submission to him as her savior and God. After Jesus rebuked her, Mary then says to the servants, do whatever Jesus tells you. Carson says, essentially Mary was rebuked because she was presuming on family ties, but she displayed a faith that was happy to leave the matter in Jesus' hands. He writes, in verse 3, Mary approaches Jesus as his mother, and then she's reproached. And in verse 5, she responds as a believer, and her faith is honored. She still does not know what he's going to do, but she has committed the matter to him, and she trusts him. These two verses, as difficult as they are, help us to shape this account of Jesus' first miracle. They ensure that the focus is on Jesus' glory, not Mary's, and it's on the disciples' faith, including Mary's. Now, there's two other instances where Mary is mentioned. The last interaction between Jesus and Mary um, that we have recorded is in John 19. Jesus is on the cross, being crucified, and Mary is standing by him. Jesus on the cross makes provision for Mary to be taken in by his friend John. She, he's going to ask John to consider Mary to be his mother and, and ask Mary to consider John her son. The very last mention of Mary is in Acts 1. We can read that. I think it's verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. I think it's just sweet that we get to see that God wanted us to know that she was there. She was part of the first church and, and that Jesus' brothers were there. They were skeptical and they were mocking of him at one point, but they had obviously turned in repentance and faith to believe in him. All right, so let's make some observations on a disciple named Mary. First of all, we can observe that Mary tells Jesus there is no wine at the wedding. We can imply from this that Mary was doing more than informing him. We can also conclude that there was something amiss in this statement or request because Jesus gently rebukes her. Mary, I, my interpretive um, observation would be that Mary seems to assume too much importance about her role as Jesus' mother. Then secondly, Mary told the servants to do whatever Jesus said. An interpretive conclusion is that Mary received Jesus' rebuke and she responded humbly and trustingly. She chose wisdom over folly, which is what we all do when we listen to biblical rebuke and correction. Third observation, Mary was standing by Jesus' cross when he was dying. And then my interpretive conclusion about this is that Mary had um, a serious strength of spirit, or you can just say she had strength of spirit. And I want to read to you what was said about her in this book, 12 Extraordinary Women. It's by John MacArthur. And I love what he says about her as she's standing here at the cross. He writes, While Mary quietly watched her son die, others were screaming wicked taunts and insults at him. Her sense of the injustice being done to him must have been profound. After all, no one understood Jesus' absolute sinless perfection better than Mary did. She had nurtured him as an infant and brought him up through childhood. No one could have loved him more than she did. All those facts merely compounded the acute grief any mother would feel at such a horrible sight. The pain of Mary's anguish is almost unimaginable. Yet she stood stoically, silently, when lesser women would have fled in horror, shrieked and thrashed around in panic, or simply collapsed in a heap from the overwhelming distress. Mary was clearly a woman of dignified grace and courage. So one of Jesus' last earthly acts before yielding up his life to God was to make sure that for the rest of her life, Mary would be cared for. That act epitomizes Mary's relationship with her firstborn son. She was his earthly mother, but he was her eternal Lord. She understood and embraced that relationship. She bowed to his authority in heavenly matters, just as in childhood and youth, he had always been subject to her parental authority in earthly matters. As a mother, she had once provided all his needs, 
but in the ultimate and eternal sense, he was her savior and provider. So Mary is indeed a woman who was greatly blessed because she was chosen to bear the Son of God, the Messiah. At the same time, Jesus offers hope to everyone that they can be just as blessed as Mary. Whoever would hear his words and believe the gospel, believing that God forgives sins through faith in Jesus' death on the cross, believing that Jesus took the punishment for the believing one's sins and then provided a wiping out of all of those sins, as well as giving the gift of righteousness that belongs to Jesus, but now is counted as the believing one's righteousness. The one who believes that good news and entrusts his life to God is just as blessed as Mary, because Jesus counts the believing ones as his own family members. Jesus considers himself a brother to believers. That is amazing. That's humbling. We, like Mary, are not deserving to be part of Jesus' family, but this is the character of the God who made us. He is merciful and kind, and he comes down to us to lift us up and to give us himself. As Jesus said multiple times in the Gospels, happy are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for telling us about Mary, the one that you chose to bear your son. Um, God, I am just amazed at your humility at putting... um, such a precious gift in the hands of this young couple who obviously loved you and who you had chosen to do this. But God, they're, they're ordinary. They're just um, like us, living an ordinary life um, in this town. But they loved you and you used them. And you provided all the strength that Mary needed to um, go through life, um, raising Jesus, raising other children, and then turning in faith um, to you and trusting in Jesus as her Messiah. God, I thank you for allowing us to see that and to um, learn from it. God, you're kind to us to give us your word, and most of all, to give us your son, to allow us to be one of those Gentiles that Simeon talked about, that would get to see the light of the Messiah, that you would um, reveal to us our need for saving and then provide it for us through Jesus. God, I just pray for the rest of the time at Wellspring that there would be just good discussion and um, fellowship and encouragement. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.